Hey, this is Andrew Schlecht from The Athletic. The NBA Finals begins on June 6th, and we have you covered at The Athletic NBA Show. Join us Monday through Friday to hear voices like Zach Harper, David Aldridge, Marcus Thompson, Dave DeFore, Sam Amick, and many more. We will have instant reaction shows after every finals game, plus podcasts to take you behind the scenes in between games. Listen to The Athletic NBA Show wherever you get your podcasts. The Athletic. And that's ball! Brilliant! Brave and brilliant! MM stands for Mick McCarthy, not Merlin Magician. Neves will hit it all! That is special! It's magic at Molyneux! Dreaming is for free. Hello and welcome to the Molyneux View podcast with me, Jackie Oatley, and the Managing Director at Hammer and Tongs Performance Limited in Warrington, Tim Spears. Hello, Tim. What are you, what are you talking about? Is that not you on LinkedIn? I looked you up on LinkedIn and it came up saying that you were the Managing Director at Hammer and Tongs Performance Limited in Warrington. I'm a Is photographer. Is that not the right one? There's Tim Spears photographer. Um, obviously, I've never, ever, ever Googled myself, but other people have and they tell me that there's a Tim Spears <laughs> photographer. There's also oh, a Spears I... bar in Glasgow, which I, which I wish to frequent one day. Oh, that's a good yeah, idea. We well, I thought you worked in a motorcycle repair shop in your spare time. It must have been a different one. It's a good-looking lad as well. What do you like? Anyway, this, Tim, is the fifth week in a row that we're recording the Molly New View after Wolves have failed to win a game. OK, so they didn't actually play this weekend, but that is just a minor detail. We're used to having no goals to analyse, so not too much change there. But he does give us a chance to talk about the latest goings-on at Wolverhampton Wanderers. What do the latest financial figures mean for the potential summer of transfers? And we have a fantastic guest who knows where all the bodies are buried at Molyneux. Richard Skiro was Wolves Club Secretary for over 20 years until his retirement four years ago. He'll tell us about his time at the club, which still means so, so much to him. And you can subscribe to The Athletic to read Tim's full analysis of all Wolves issues for a 40% discount by going to theathletic.co.uk forward slash Wolves pod. So that's less than a pound a week for six months. How are you, Tim? Yeah, yeah, very good. Very good, Bab. How are you? Yeah, okay, thank you. How's this week good. been for you? No match? You've been busy hammering your contacts? It's been thrill a minute. Uh, I moved from one side of the sofa to the other uh, just to mix things up. And um, yeah, changed up a couple of meals. You know, I had cereal in the evening once instead of cereal in the morning. So it's been pretty crazy. It's been pretty crazy. So you had spaghetti bolognese for breakfast, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, and a bottle bottle of wine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, it's not long now though, Bab. It's not long now until some semblance of normality. Cannot wait, cannot wait. Now, Tim, the club, Wolverhampton Wanderers, have announced a financial loss for the year of nearly £40 million, but... As you wrote in your piece, there are plenty of mitigating factors for that. Yeah, so I guess, you know, you see the initial headline of, of loss and think, oh, oh dear, not a great year. But obviously, you know, we were anticipating this since as as these accounts cover the period up to March 31st last year, which, um, you know, is two to three months of, of impact of pandemic. So, yeah, the headline figures, 39 million loss, but Wolves say it would have been a 17 million profit in a normal year, you know, without the pandemic hitting. And what the pandemic did was, A, take away five games um, where fans would have been in attendance. That's four league games and the Olympiacos home game. And also a lot of the TV money was deferred until the end of the season 
because like I said, these accounts, it's important to state, only go up to May 31st. And people will remember that matches were played after that, of course. The season restarted in June and July. That's when TV money would have then been paid and the money they get for finishing seventh, etc. So a lot of that money has been carried over and will be reflected in the current year's accounts. But some of it has gone for good. Wolves estimate there's £11 million that, they just, that they've lost out of this and won't get back out of losing money from, you know, gate receipts and a couple of other bits. I know an interesting thing to note as well was the amount of money they spent on players, which is sort of easily forgotten, really. I mean, it's a while ago now, but the summer that they signed Jimenez and Dendonka and Neto and Catroni and Bruno Jordao, and then they signed Daniel Pedence the January afterwards, they had a net spend of £103 on transfers. Didn't sell many, that year, I think Cavalero went to Fulham in the January. Uh, Courtney Hawes went to Villa for a little bit. Pedro Gonçalves went to Famalisa for a little bit. But otherwise, didn't really sell many players. They spent an awful lot. And um, I think we've seen the knock-on effect of that in 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 the next summer, where you know they didn't wasn't a huge net spend last summer when they you know they sold Jota and uh, Doherty. So some interesting figures in there. Um, things like uh, bank loans are now up to sixty million pounds. Um, the club owes owners Fosun one hundred and twenty-seven million pounds. There's no interest on that, and Fosun aren't asking for that back at this stage. Obviously, they've invested a huge amount of money into the club. Uh, wages have only gone up a couple of million quid to ninety-four million, and the average in the Premier League is about one hundred sixty-three million. So Wolves are well down on wages compared to other clubs. So in general, and you know, I remember speaking to Matt Slater a year ago when last year's accounts came out, and you've got to say this year's accounts are pretty similar in that you've got a big net spend on players and they would have made a very similar profit to the year before had the pandemic not hit. Very similar. And Matt kind of said, look, you know, despite uh, the debt and and loans from banks and whatever, Wolves are a very well-run club. And, you know, all all, all these kind of things like loans, like debt, it's, it's it's all pretty normal, really. And in terms of how they compare to other clubs, yes, they've made a loss, but it's nowhere near Everton, who've lost 140 million, or Leicester, who've lost 67 million. Um, I think West Ham, Brighton, Spurs, Southampton have all posted a loss of more than £60 million. So compared to those clubs, Wolves, Wolves are better off. So yeah, despite the loss, it, it's been a pretty good year financially. A loss isn't great, but certainly to be expected. And when you say Fosun aren't asking for that £100-plus million loan yet, should the word yet be any cause for concern for supporters? Um, I mean, it's it's £127 million and when you... That's basically what what they what they'll roughly what they'll make from TV income in in one season. So you know their, their incomes shot up massively. It was 172 million last year. It's slightly less this year due to the issues with TV money not coming in at the end of the season. Um, so no, I, I think that's pretty standard practice. They've had to invest in the club to get the club to where it is now. So the fact that it's interest-free, the fact that they're not, not, not asking for it back yet, and, and why would they? Um, it's pretty standard practice and no, shouldn't be a cause for concern. Obviously, um, that's one for the future, but not for now. Will that be paid back at some stage? I would almost certainly would have thought so because they're an investment firm who's invested money into the club and they want that money back. But that's 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 a question for, for Fosun and for Jeff Shee. But, um, but like I said, the most important thing is it's interest-free and they're not asking back for it now, so it's not an issue at this stage. Yeah, it's not like it's a situation like Steve Morgan, for example, where it was all about the club's interest and he wrote off a load of personal debt at the end of it. This is a very different operation, isn't it? It's a 
it's a Chinese investment firm, but they are here for the long term as as far as you're concerned. We've had a few tweets about Fosun's ambitions for the club. Wolves first, for example. What are Fosun's ambitions for the club now? Are they still the same as those when they took over or are we likely to become a selling club? I don't see any signs of them being a selling club. I think it's it's so easy to rewrite history and, and say that they sold Jota and Doherty to make money last summer when the reality was they didn't, you know, Jota was at the team and Doherty was sold as, as part of, you know, bringing Semedo in as part of introducing a new style into the team. So I see absolutely no um, slowing down in commitment from Fosun. I think there are issues in the long term, such as they've asked for increased investment. You know, this is about 18 months ago now, I mentioned this a couple of times, you know, they want they want outside investors to come in and invest in the club. That hasn't happened yet. Pandemic will have played a big part in that. And then the future of Molyneux as well, as to as to how much is going to be spent on Molyneux, what's the Molyneux plan. You know, as of, yeah, about 18 months ago, the plan was still to fully redevelop Molyneux. And, you know, we've seen these fantastic images, which are a couple of years old now, of what, what Molyneux would have looked like had this gone through. We know they've scaled back on that now, but Molyneux still needs a lot of work. There still needs to be a long-term plan in place um, for how to generate more income from the stadium. Wolves' income from, you know, match day income pales into insignificance compared to clubs that they're competing with, really, like West Ham, like Newcastle, like Leicester. Wolves don't make anywhere near as much, I, I don't believe, in terms of from their match day income. So there are issues around that. And, you know, Leicester, Leicester, as I said earlier, lost 67 million this season. They spent 70 million on their training ground, for example. Was, I think Wolves haven't spent a huge amount of money on Compton or Molyneux, you know, recently. But... Compton, as far as I'm aware, and, and having visited it many times, is, is pretty, it's very state of the art. But Molyneux, as we know, the steeple stand is so outdated; it's untrue. You know, to stick away fans in there week after week, it's um, it's uh, it's not great, really. I mean, it's very dated. Um, so there there are questions on that in the long term. But as as Foson have said, and in the sort of opposite approach to Steve Morgan in that third season in the Premier League, they want to spend money on the team first and foremost, make sure they're in the Premier League year after year to get that crucial TV money, which is what it's all about, and and to move up the table. And then the stadium can happen after that. And Foson have kind of switched from talking about a 10-year plan to talking about a 20-year plan, which suggests you know they're thinking longer term than they initially were. So that's all good. I know it's, it's not great that that they've lost all that money, of course, from fans being in the stadium this year. But they only made 12 million from gate receipts in 2019-20. 12 million. That was up from 11 million the season before because of extra games in the Europa League, I'm assuming, will play a big part of that. So 12 million from gate receipts, and it's far more than 100 million, you know, from, from TV and league money. So, yes, it's a bad thing that, that they've lost this money from gate receipts and, and tickets this year. But like I said, compared to TV money, I mean, it's nothing really. So as Matt Wilde said when we had him on the podcast a few weeks ago, they've taken the pessimistic approach in their forecast for kind of the year and next two years ahead. Um, so that's just stand them in good stead, really. You know, they're, they're looking at the worst case scenario constantly. And that's a very sensible outlook. They're not spending above their means. I think you can certainly say that, which should be reassuring to fans. Fans might want them to go out and spend 100 million this summer and not sell anybody and, and have a bigger squad and smash the wage barrier. But really, the approach they take is is definitely the most sensible one for the long term. And I think if you look at what other Premier League clubs are doing, Wolves are, Wolves are far more sensible and prudent and long-term in their approach, which ultimately, 
Although fans might, like I said, want them to go out and spend a huge amount of money on players, ultimately this is this is how you want your football club to be run. Absolutely. Stability, maybe not a sexy word, but when you think of the alternative and older Wolves supporters will know exactly what that alternative means after what happened a few years ago with the Batty Brothers, etc. Then they'll be going for this um, stable approach for now. Although they will, of course, want Wolves to spend in the summer and that's something we'll come on to talk about later on in the podcast. Bring in Richard Skiro now, who was club secretary at Wolves for over 20 years and was so, so highly regarded at the club. And we're absolutely delighted to have him join us on the Molly New View. Hello, Richard. Hello, Jackie. Hello, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us on the Molly New View. Absolute pleasure to have you with us. How's retirement suiting you? Um, well, it started off very well. Um, we had a couple of exotic invites to weddings we went to uh, santa monica and christchurch new zealand for weddings that we wouldn't have been able to accept uh and then a bob seeger concert in phoenix arizona a year later but it's gone downhill a bit recently um we're not doing a great deal like everybody else yeah i bet you're not missing transfer deadline day though are you being a club secretary in the office with all the stress that that involves certainly not no i um like everybody else i now follow it on television and i'm glad not to be at the uh, sharp end of it and just for people who aren't aware of what the club secretary role involves particularly your role at the club over all those years what were your uh, main tasks uh, first and foremost, you're really compliant with rules and regulations from the FA, the Football League, the Premier League, FIFA, whatever. Um, but certainly the way it was structured at Wolves, it's probably the, the job that overlaps most with all other areas of the club. Uh, I'm a chartered accountant by profession, so um, I had a, a lot of uh, liaison with Rita Purewell, who in all my time was our sort of financial controller, head of finance. Uh, we were very budget driven. We can perhaps come back to that in a bit. Um, lot of interaction with policing and stewarding, uh, but you're also involved with ticketing, pricing, to a lesser extent, commercial and merchandising, but pitch maintenance, academy. And then of course, from 2005, I was based down at the training ground and in effect, you know, Jez had made it clear that the training ground was my responsibility and the smooth operation and the running of Compton was down to me, really. So it was quite wide. It is, I think, at most clubs. You know, if there isn't an obvious home for um, a job, it usually ends up with the secretary. What was the most stressful part of the job? Well, it, it varies, uh, Jackie. A transfer is always quite stressful. Um, you know, I would be the one, Jez... Uh, and prior to that, John Richards probably, uh, but particularly in Jez's era, you know, Jez would do the negotiation on the t- on the terms of a transfer and the pl- and the player contract. I'd have I'd have my say in it, but I'd I'd always do the drafting of it, um, yeah, and you're usually working to some sort of time pressure, particularly on transfer deadline day, to to get things in in time, registrations done. But you there is a stressful element to making sure you've you've got things unambiguous correctly classified in terms of league regulations um, you know you'd submit your 
your forms famously by fax for a long time but then finally we did the industry did move to email and you'd wait for the nod from the league that it's correct or you've got an error here or you've got a you know some ambiguity there or you've got a typo there or this that and the other but uh, so yeah that's that type of thing is stressful but then match days and big local derbies you'd be you know you'd be looking at the crowd and the stewarding and the the police and and hoping it went off peacefully as well that sort that sort of thing really you it's it was never it, the away games were often less stressful because you you're then just going almost as a club official and ambassador and you're supporting your team but you haven't got the responsibility of the event going smoothly yeah, you get a nice free meal you sit down in the director's lounge and that's it they look after absolutely, you instead absolutely. of the other way around you're running around with your yeah, phone yes. and getting pinged but, all the time and there's some nice, nice memories from that side of things, certainly. Yeah, I bet. Oh, you'd have been there when Wolves almost signed Ivan Tony as an 18-year-old from Northampton and looked as though the deal was going to go through and then he failed a medical, didn't he? Now everyone's talking about this lad as being a, I don't know, what, a £30 million striker or something. Do you remember that? I do, yes. I, I wasn't sure, actually, whether it was in the public domain that... Um, that he had failed a medical because... Well, it is now. <laughs> no, no, it was, it was. It was all in the papers <laughs> at was, the time. Was it? Yeah. Um, we One or two people um, failed medicals with us. Um, Alan Gow, yeah. Yeah, the, that uh, have gone on to do well and um, have good careers. And, it, you know, it's not always, I suppose, failing a medical. It's just there being, the being perhaps too many concerns to justify the outlay, the fee, the salary. And we always had a very good, diligent, thorough medical department that would perhaps highlight problems that I suspect some other clubs wouldn't have done. And then obviously you have to take a view. But yeah, I, Ivan Tony and yeah, <laughs> red hot property, isn't he? Um, Richard, was there any, any particular deal that strikes out has been stressful, uh, maybe even on transfer deadline night. I mean, you know, we rarely get an insight into things like this. The, the Sunderland documentary on Netflix will be one where you just see the sheer panic of trying to get the paperwork over the line. Are there any in particular that, that kind of stand out for you? There's one There's one that thankfully didn't happen, but I, I, I don't feel I can mention the player really, but at about at about half past nine quarter quarter to ten even so we're down to 90 minutes or 75 minutes we were going to be uh, potentially transferring one of our players to a foreign club who were then going to immediate loan him back to a big rival club in the in the UK and this just seemed absolutely absolutely bizarre to me but it 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 was alive and kicking for you know, the best part of an hour or so, I didn't see the sense in doing it, but that wasn't my job. It wasn't my job too, and I couldn't veto it from that point of view. But thankfully, the foreign club, it was probably already 4am where they were, uh, and, it, and it, all, it all came to a halt. But that was, that was, pretty, um, that was pretty stressful with, uh, it was, uh, I think Steve Morgan and Kenny were the, were the chairman and, and manager at the time. So yeah, there's you know there's ones where I, I I wouldn't want to give full detail, but it all got pretty pretty hairy. Um, I remember Michael Jilks as a as a loan as a loan signing on because um, of course it used to be the March transfer deadline day was the big thing, wasn't it? You'll probably both re- both remember that in the old days. 
uh, and he got stuck in traffic and um, well that was that was a tight run thing one deal that always sticks out for me for being unusual and it's a while ago so I might be testing your memory here but I'm sure it'll stick out for you as well was the Samuel Jaber deal I thought that might um, get mentioned <laughs> it's, it's just I was trying to think of some of some you know unusual transfers during your time and that one would stick out for me was that how was that different to, to normal transfers and what are your kind of memories of, of that deal um Armed, armed guards in the corridors of Molyneux are things what is what stand out on that deal. The Saudi prince was it Prince Khalid? Was that was that his name? I th- that rings a bell. I think um, so. Came over by helicopter, landed landed at Dunstall Park, and had a couple of um, bodyguards with him. And um, Prince Khalid would be in with Jez, and I was in for most of it. Um, talking about the deal with these two guys just standing in the rabbit warren of corridors as they were at that time at Molyneux, just making sure that uh, no harm came to the prince Um, and doing this deal for Saudi Arabia's hottest property. You know, I think he he played 150 games or something in the end for, for Saudi Arabia and was was regarded as their David Beckham and ultimately his testimonial was was against Manchester United with David Beckham I think uh, and you know and unfortunately ended up playing for the reserves at Bilston more often more often than not and it was a real shame because he was a he was a really nice really nice guy was Sammy uh, he used to send a box of dates to Barbara Martin on reception every Christmas even when he'd left huge box of dates really you know really nice guy and it's it's a shame when these things don't don't work out you do you do feel for the individual um whose you know career has taken a wrong turning really um richard um people may think of of directors and and vips and and important club staff as has been very kind of professional during matches and you know hands on Sitting on their hands, etc. When goals go in, now in in my position as in the press box, I can often see that that's very much not the case. Certainly, you know, for, for away games when you've got the Wolves dignitaries kind of going up for a goal. What what was your general director box approach to uh, a Wolves goal being scored when you're at uh, an away ground? And did it ever get you in trouble if you're up on your feet celebrating? Uh, well, complete excitement, Tim. Yes, the game is so important, and the thrill of scoring a goal particularly before VAR, when you knew that it was a goal and was and would remain a goal, was fantastic and you'd celebrate to the full. You'd always be a bit respectful. You certainly, you know, you, you wouldn't point, you wouldn't turn around and uh, point fingers at anybody on the opposition, but you'd always celebrate in full. It, uh, yeah, yeah, it had its hairy, hairy moments. Once at the Hawthorns, we were seated right on the flank of um, the director's box, so next to some avid Albion supporters who didn't take too kindly to us celebrating a goal, shall we say. Um, I once got called um, a dickhead. Can you use that in a podcast? Yes, absolutely. Uh, fitting, fittingly at Manchester City at Main Road, given my former allegiance to Manchester United, who I grew up supporting. Uh, I got a Told to, told to shut up in knowing uncertain terms by a City fan. I think I was complaining about a decision, a referee's decision. But no, it's all, all good, you know, by and large, all good fun. 
You say your former allegiance there. Now, you, you, you were very much a Manchester United supporter, but I've known you many years, Richard, and, and Wolves have massively got into your blood. I mean, it was more than just a job to you, wasn't it? Yes, I've absolutely no no split loyalties now. It is Wolves through and through, you know, after, tw- after 20 years, and I, I don't really fully, still don't fully understand how it did get into me, my blood so quickly, except you, you know, obviously you give 100% to who whoever you're working for. I, I did at West Ham and, you know, the moment you come to Wolves, it's 100% for Wolves. But it has, it, it, the depth of the connection that I've made with the club does slightly surprise me, but it's great and it's there and no split loyalties whatsoever. How did you feel about the transfer of ownership to Fosun towards the end of your time there? I mean, what was that to work through and to live through? Uh, well, both both acquisitions that I was in, involved with, which was Steve Morgan taking over from Sir Jack and then Fosun from Steve Morgan, they are huge bodies of work really because obviously I was company secretary as well as club secretary so you you then do get into a really big legal exercise and you're having to disclose every document that you've got every you know every contract that you've got huge exercises Steve was selling the club and you know as I think Jez is on on record as saying you get a heck of a lot of time wasters who express an interest but just can't take it any further, haven't got the funds. Fosun quickly established credibility from that point of view. We'd got we'd got close with a Middle Eastern outfit. I'm not sure whether that was in ever in the public domain or got into the public domain. I think it got mentioned, but it had looked as if a Middle East and um acquisition might might happen and we'd actually gone down for a meeting in London with them, which would have been myself, Jez John Bowater as uh, one of the board and a finance director um, of good experience and standing. Rita would have gone down, Rita Pewell, the head of finance, and one of Steve's in a circle from from back up at, in Chester, the Chester area. And um, we we we'd met and had a meal at this restaurant before the before the meeting, late afternoon meal in in London. Uh, because we'd been expressly told that it was just a meeting, and then we got we got there, and it was a full three course dinner, plus a meeting. Uh, so you know we were getting into a vicar of Dibley Christmas dinner sketch, but um, fortunately Jez and I were able to hold our own in that respect. So, but that never never came to fruition, and Folsom did. And then the the problem with Folsom's acquisition was the timing of it really and that it was so close to the start of a season and so close to the end of a transfer window and um, everything had to be done in such a such a rush from their point of view in terms of trying to um, you know kick off with a successful season and you know poor old Kenny Jacket who had done such a such a really top first class job was not surprisingly perhaps the first real casualty in that they wanted to appoint their own head coach manager. Um, a busy few weeks, I'd imagine, um, certainly was for everyone at the club at the time. Um, I guess another busy period, Richard, and probably one of the ones maybe that sticks out most is, is when Mick left after that disastrous defeat to Albion and and, and the fallout that followed. Is, 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 that a, is that a period that really sticks out for you? And, and what, what was that kind of 24 hours like after the, after the Albion defeat? Yeah, very sad because Mick was such a good all-round guy. Really, he 
he really mixed strength and I'm sure he's that this still is one of his strengths and I'm sure he's doing the same thing at Cardiff he really does bring everybody together he's a very inclusive guy gets to know people across all sorts of departments you really do feel it's you know it's a one club mentality sort of thing uh, and he'd and he'd been successful of course he'd got us into the Premier League and we'd stayed in for two seasons albeit by skin of our teeth on at the end of the second one but now in this third in this third season he got dismissed I, I do feel it was so unlucky in many ways people said that we mishandled it as a club and why didn't we have somebody lined up and this that and the other well Mick deserved not to have somebody lined up to take his job everybody wanted Mick to retain his job and as I've said before you know if, if we hadn't have lost that game he wouldn't have lost his job uh, we'd won the previous game. We weren't in a great position in the league, but we had won the previous game. And um, had we not lost to Albion, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have lost his job. So how you know how could you have had anybody lined up really? And I do also remember the reason that they went three one ahead was because we'd just hit the bar from a corner and they immediately counter attacked and and got a third. You know we'd been centimeters away from making it two all with 15 or 20 minutes left and we'd have had a most of the crowd cheering us on and the momentum would have been all with us it's again it's fine margins but Steve decided that a change had to be made and it, yeah it's very very sad to see somebody go when they've contributed as much as Mick did yeah and then there was the following sort of nightmare wasn't there really for the next few weeks which ensued with trying to find another manager and the rest is history hey but um in terms of looking back at your time at the club and I would imagine as well as transfer windows and signings and all the, the kind of stress and fun and games that was involved, you probably think about the people and the characters and the people that really made the job so enjoyable that drew you in so much that turned you into a Wolves fan from being a Manchester United fan for so many years. And I'm thinking the likes of Rachel Hayhoe Flint and, and Graham Hughes, who very sadly passed away recently, and Foz, of course, in the media department, people who loved Wolves beyond belief. Do you think that it's a little bit sad that perhaps the club won't be the same again? Or do you think there are those characters there who will ensure that that legacy continues, despite the fact that most of the operations now have moved from Molyneux to Compton? I can't really speak with any great authority as to what the level of camaraderie and everything else is, you know, whether it's the same or whether it's it's not quite the same. I think that I think there is more of a, a Compton Molyneux split in a way because because so much now happens at Compton and there is there's probably less interaction between between the two sites. So that is a concern. But you've still got the two Johns on the board: John Goff, John Bowater, who uh, are Wolves through and through. You know Matt Matt Wild who is my successor, was at the club briefly with me when he and I were still working out of an office at Molyneux. So, you know, you have to, uh, I know we've got Josh Power in the, pre in the press office, he's a, a die-hard Wolves fan. There are, there are Wolves fans through the, through the business, ticket office, etc., etc. that you just hope have, are going to make sure that the, the, spirit, the spirit stays the same. I think it is, it's different with a 
foreign owner probably it obviously is different than than sir jack with with that huge passion and you know certainly the loss of rachel and and graham huge front of house presence sort of thing great ambassadors for the club so I hope it stays largely, largely unchanged because I do one of the one of the things that I feel so passionate about is Molyneux's uniqueness. Almost, it's city centre location. It's it's um, accessibility to people and and those trophy cabinets. Not as many of them now because we've got the museum, but the trophy cabinets that Graham so lovingly uh, looked after and people were able to come in and look at them and that's that was pretty pretty unique you know we had one or two i remember um suddenly there was a picture of ed sheeran sitting in the home dressing room and that was just because we're a city center location ed sheeran was playing at the civic this was before he was really big but he was big enough and he'd just come down and wanted to see the ground and i don't think graham would have known ed sheeran from frank sinatra but Took him, took him into the dressing rooms. As Graham did the, the full tunnel tour, the you know the twenty-minute history on why Wolves was the greatest club in the world, and uh, lo and behold, there's a picture of Ed Sheeran in the home dressing room. You know the Calendar Girls were was being staged at um, the at the Grand, and Rachel knew most of the female cast of the Calendar Girls, and and they came down, and it's it was just very rare that. The ground is so accessible from the city centre, the bus station, the, the railway station, and it's you know it's ten strides off the off the footpath that's walking past the ground, and in you go, and you're in the amidst the trophies and the history. Fantastic. Yeah, and you personally knew Graham Hughes so well, didn't you? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I was. I had responsibility for the bit of budget that Graham would spend. You know, I wouldn't say I had control of it, <laughs> just responsibility for it. You know, Graham, Graham and an auction catalogue were a deadly combination, but he was so, so keen and, of course, was ultimately so generous as well in donating his collection of memorabilia to the club. But, um, you know, he, he would find out about something coming up at an auction and it always seemed to be the missing link it was you know it was the one dinner dinner menu from one civic reception that we hadn't previously got and this would give us the this would complete our collection of 27 dinner menus uh and you know we shouldn't we shouldn't need to pay more than 1500 pounds for it or something. <laughs> you know fantastic and then as, as got mentioned in um Tim's piece that he did for the Athletic, you know, the the use of cousin cousin's imperial leather soap, and I would say to Graham, you know, other other cheaper soaps are available, Graham, as we bought another gross of imperial leather, but uh, no imperial leather it was, great great character, great character, wonderful, warm, um, first point of contact for so many people, as they you know as they came through the doors reception and. And Graham and Graham engaging them in conversation and fantastic. When you look back at all those away trips that you had, Richard, what stood out for you in terms of the best away trip or the most memorable, maybe? I think the the, the privilege of you know following your club in such circumstances, really, and being wined and dined and and, and looked after by the, by the home team and 
over the years, then you've had uh, you've had lunch with um, Nat Lofthouse at Bolton. You've met Tom Finney at uh, Preston, and so on. But I do I do recall in the two thousand and three four season, our first in the Premiership, going to Stamford Bridge uh, and being on the same table for lunch as Stephen Redgrave, who was a, who was a Chelsea fan, and his and his daughter. That was that was good for starters but then it was this was march to march 2004 and we were already struggling at and ultimately of course we got relegated chelsea were a good side but we we'd had a really good half it was it was one all at half time and we just sort of as you always did mulling over what's gone on and then suddenly lord attenborough uh dicky richard attenborough just came came up to me uh, you know, head of the British Film Board and all sorts of titles, and president of Chelsea, and just started talking talking football, and said, "I think he'll bring on Duff for the second half," which he did. Uh, but we went two one ahead with Jody Craddock scored, uh, and it was actually bringing on Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, uh, who scored a thirty minute hat trick, uh, and we and we lost five two. But I was looking back at that that game. And possibly anticipating, you know, being asked for sort of memorable occasions, the the Wolves back four was Mark Clyde, Jody Craddock, Paul Butler, and Lee Naylor, and Chelsea. I mean, they've got Makalele and Lampard in in midfield, but they've got Joe Cole, Ida Good Jonsson came off at half time for Duff. They'd got Herman Crespo was playing, and they they brought um, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank on. You know. I was, with, with no disrespect to Paul Butler whatsoever, I was wondering, did he end up marking Crespo or Hasselbank? But, uh, you know, it, it finished 5-2, but just just a chat with Lord Attenborough, you just think, where on earth has that come from? And it's a football chat with one of the all-time British film greats and everything. And, and that that stands in the memory. And there was also a little funny bit right right at the end of the game, just before we were leaving. So it you know, probably got to six o'clock or something. And one of the Chelsea, the wives of one of the Chelsea officials, there must have been something on TV had just come on about the fact that it was a rollover lottery draw that night. And I wasn't there, I was talking to somebody else, but she apparently turned to Jane, my wife, and and, that, and said something like, well, let's be honest, what difference would a million pounds to us make? And I think Jane was so flabbergasted, she ended up agreeing with her. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, how the other half live, hey? Oh, my life. It's just one of those occasions. St- Stephen Redgrave, Lord Attenborough, <laughs> the, the Wolves back four versus that line-up. And, well, what difference would a million pounds make? Yeah, not a, not a lot. <laughs> Not to them. No, I was actually reporting on that game and I remember being in the press box and Foz was absolutely devastated. I'd taken it kind of, well, okay, you know, it's Chelsea, what an outstanding lineup. And he was having none of it. He was absolutely in bits. Even though he was there working for the club, he felt it so keenly. Yes. That, you know, that's that was the problem, really. It's, it's a bit different now. I think clubs getting promoted to the Premier League now, everybody gets so much money. You have perhaps got a chance to to strengthen and hold your own and compete but into that 2003-04 we really were faced with a huge uphill struggle weren't we I mean as we we lost Julian and Matt through injuries and um, 
the first two results, Blackburn away and Charlton at home, wasn't it? We got absolutely thumped and that, yeah. unfortunately, although we, we improved later on, it, uh, it was beyond us. Lovely to hear from Richard Skiro there, Tim, and his recollections, particularly transfer recollections were interesting about the player that was nearly sold to a foreign club and loaned back. I think we have an idea who that might have been. Sacco. It's got to be Sacco. Has to be Sacco. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was their only decent player to sell him in that one. They had a few, but he was the only one that was sort of close to leaving at that time, I seem to remember. Maybe a phobia as well, but, but Albion were in for him for forever, weren't they? And they eventually got him after he left Palace. So, but we should say Richard has not revealed that the identity. No, but, no, he hasn't. But, but I would, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, it's got to be Sacco, isn't it? No, he's a uh, he's good one to keep his counsel, is Richard. As I said, very respected, partly for that reason. Um, now, you talked about transfers. A, a few Wolves fans talking about Rafa Mir, bearing in mind he's a Wolves player and he's scoring a few goals in Spain. How's he getting on? Good. He's doing very well. Um, he's caught the attention of a lot of people this season, surprisingly. Playing for La Liga's worst team at Huesca, bottom of the table. Um, but he still scored eight goals, um, 11 in all comps. He scored more than Antoine Griezmann. He scored more than Joe Felix, and he's playing. He scored even more than Willian Jose. <laughs> hey, there she goes. Um, uh, but yeah, playing for the worst team in the league, so good for him. And as I've kind of said in, in a piece I did, which came out uh, a few days ago, I forget what day this is, and I forget what day that came out because all the days are the same. But it's on the website, <laughs> and um, he was a total flop at Forest. And <laughs> Rafa Mir scored against Barcelona last week as a penalty. And a Nottingham Forest fan website did a did a story, um, and the intro was something along the lines of "The name of Rafa Mir will send shudders down the spine of any Nottingham Forest fan," and um, I kind of equate him to Nottingham Forest version of Thomas Frankowski or Steve Claridge or Yannick Sagbo or maybe Adam LaFondra, Robert Taylor. There are quite a few, Jackie Oatley, as you know, non-goal-scoring uh, Wolves strikers from over the years. And Mir didn't score for Forest in 13 appearances. Didn't score for, for Wolves in four appearances before that. But here he is, age 23 in Spain, making a name for himself. And, you know, if you're going to get into double figures for the worst team in the league, you're making yourself a very saleable asset. And I think, ultimately, that's probably what will happen with Rafa Mir. The fact that he's not been at Wolves since 2018, it's going to be three years, basically, um, that he's that he's been in and around the Wolves first team, suggests to me that Nuno has no intention of bringing him back and making him part of the squad. However, the financial situation, um, uncertainty over income at the moment with the pandemic, means that there may, may be a slight opening if Wolves don't want to spend a lot of money on a striker this summer. And the fact that in the last two summers they've spent thirty million on Jimenez and thirty-five million on Silver suggests they're probably not going to go out and spend a lot more on a striker this summer. Let's be honest. Jimenez is the number one, and Silver's their number two. But as this season has told us, you can't rely on Jimenez being your number one striker for the whole season, and you can't. There's too much of a risk to go into that campaign with. So you never know. Rafa Mir may be that sort of second or third choice striker, as is far more likely he'll be sold off. But what he's doing is making himself a saleable asset. And I spoke to a Spanish football writer, Robbie Dunn, who said, look, he could be worth 12, 15 million. 
Um, and Wolves paid a million and a half for him from Valencia, so that'd be a fantastic profit. And that kind of feeds into um, you know a lot of questions we've had uh, about this summer's transfer budget. And if they can get fifteen million for Rafa Mir, then that's going to be reinvested back into the first team. So that's going to be good news. And yes, we'll come on to talk a bit more about that. Just a little bit about low knees. Uh, Dion Sanderson, you've written about and is continuing to do really, really well. I caught up with uh, Scott Wilson, who writes for the Northern Echo, and he said Sanderson's been excellent he had to be patient got a bit lucky because both Sunderland's senior centre-halves got injured so he was thrust in but he's been superb in the last month or so strong assured good on the ball could be playing championship now no problem and will be a Premier League player in future I reckon seems a nice lad whenever we've talked to him as well so he's continuing his progress and you think maybe championship loan next season for him probably probably because I think that they'll be looking to bring a top class defender in Uh, they certainly should be um, which means that Sanderson probably wouldn't get his chance at Wolves next season, you'd say. Um, so, yeah, championship line would be good for him, I think. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not happening for Luke Matheson, though, at Ipswich. I spoke to the um, BBC Suffolk correspondent or commentator, Brenna Woolley, who said he's only played a couple of games, but then unfortunate enough to feature in a goalless draw with Northampton, arguably the worst home performance in my 163 years of watching them, he says, everybody struggled. Uh, and he said that he's lost his place, unfortunately, to Kane Vincent Young, who was out injured for 17 months. And so he's gone even further down the pecking order, he says. But on the plus side, he's probably my favourite footballer ever to interview. I'd happily have him every week for press. Possibly the nicest person in football. That must be a right back thing, he said. Um, so that's positive in terms of his character, but just a real shame he's not getting any minutes. Yeah, a real shame. I mean, the whole idea was to get out and into play every week as he was. Initially, uh, Paul Lambert was in charge at the time. Now it's Paul Cook, and yeah, not even on the bench recently, which is disastrous from a from a loanee point of view. So yeah, so I've, I had a look at some of the players and that that are out on loan. Quite a few are playing. Meriton Shabani's played five appearances for Weber Venlo in Holland, although he's picked up an injury now. But that's good that he's been getting some game time. Ryan Giles down at Rotherham, fighting for their lives in the Championship. Uh, he's playing regularly, either starting or coming off the bench. Ruben Vinagre is getting game time now. He was not featuring really at all for Olympiacos. People will remember uh, he went out on loan in the summer to Olympiacos. Then he went out to Famali Sao in January because he wasn't playing in Greece. He's made 12 starts in the in the Portuguese top flight. So I think that's 12 consecutive starts as well. So he's getting good game time. That's great. One man who isn't and who's having a disastrous season is Patrick Catrone. He's only played four times for Valencia off the bench. That's to add to his two substitute appearances in the league for Wolves and 11 substitute appearances in the league for Fiorentina. So Patrick Catroni's league record for three clubs combined this season is 17 sub-appearances and no starts. No goals at all. He's only played 439 minutes um, in all competitions for three clubs. That's basically five full games over the season. So this is bad. It's very bad because Wolves paid 16 million for this guy. And if they want to get anywhere near that back, he's got to be playing and scoring. But if you do kind of add up the values of some of those players I've just mentioned, there's quite a bit of money to be made there. If somehow, and it's a massive if, but if Wolves got their 16 million back for Catroni or somewhere near, and then, you know, Robbie Dunn, a Spanish, a Spanish football expert, um, writes for AS, is saying at least 12 million for Rafa Mir given his goal-scoring record. If you maybe get five to ten million for Vinagra, they paid two for him, you know, exciting young talent. If they get their six million back for Bruno Jordao, if they get two, three million for Shabani, all that adds up to about 40 million quid. 
that's not to be sniffed at. And if that's reinvested into the squad this summer, then that's Deadwood that's nowhere near the first team squad that brings in 40 million quid. Now, they did this with Costa and Cavalero last summer, 40 million for those two players. They have got a good record of getting decent fees. Jota, 45 million, I think, blew everybody's mind at the time, you know, before he went on that scoring streak at Liverpool. So it's not just about maybe Traore or maybe Neves has got to move on this summer. You know, there are other avenues of bringing funds in and getting rid of those deadwood for good prices is going to be a massive part of, of this summer. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Catrone. One goal in 27 appearances for clubs, plural, three clubs, and country. Because remember, he's an Italian, Italy, under-21 international, which does show he has ability. He's a full international as well, I think. Yeah, I think I think he got a full cap once upon a yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, he scored his, his one goal in his last 27 appearances last October for Italy under-21s against Republic of Ireland. Um, I mean, he does have good stock, so maybe it's a case of loaning him out again next season somewhere where he's going to be happy and, and just get his value up because he doesn't seem to have a, a future at Wolves, does he? But it's the one area they're really struggling with recruitment-wise. Maybe is... Well, that's probably unfair, actually, because Fabio Silva is absolutely one for the future. Um, but we have had so many tweets on this, Tim, so I can't let you go anywhere until you've given us a bit more indication. Just in terms of your impression from what you know from speaking to the club and just knowing them as you do as to what they might actually do in the summer. Do you think they will maybe sell some of those loanies to generate some funds? Because the one thing that Wolf supporters are united on is the fact that there needs to be money spent on players for now or loans whichever but first team ready players a rock solid center half a box to box or at least an athletic midfielder um and of course a striker who can score goals yeah absolutely i mean you know you ask are they going to get rid of some of those players absolutely that's i think it should be a, a real key facet of this summer i think at 20 million combined for katroni and rafa Mir, it's just bonus money out of nowhere really that fans probably aren't really thinking about so um yeah this summer i mean you look at what they did last summer in terms of their net spend was pretty low roughly spent 80 million um primarily on Samedo, silver and hoover and roughly brought in the same amount by selling Jota, Doherty and Costa, um, albeit a lot of those fees are spread over the terms of the players' contracts. So, as mentioned earlier, and I mentioned many times, without that outside investment that they've called for, and with the uncertainty over exactly what their incomes are going, income levels are going to be this year, I would not expect a huge amount of net spend this summer. Um, I don't think that's I don't think that's financially viable. And uh, knowing the way that Foson work, they're so careful. I would. They're not going to splash the cash and push the boat out to use a couple of cliches this summer however that doesn't mean that they can't bring in some top players um as just mentioned they can bring in about 30 40 million from deadwood at least and they may look to sell one of their first team players to to reinvest into this into the team elsewhere as you said there they need a center half they're crying out for a midfielder they'll need to bring a striker in i think to complement jimenez and fabio silva so yeah it's the same for everybody this obviously this coronavirus situation it kind of goes without saying and we will see clubs spend less money but that's reflected around the whole market. The whole market will see smaller transfer fees spent. So Wolves might not spend 50, 70, 90 million this summer. But it doesn't mean they can't bring in some top players because everyone's value is going to go down. So yeah, it just means you've got to be cuter in the market. More loans to buy. 
etc. Yeah, absolutely. And the most important thing surely they can do is make little tweaks, inexpensive ones ideally, to maximise the talent they have at their disposal. And, and I keep thinking about this, lying in bed at night or driving or cycling or walking or do whatever, thinking, how do wolves get the best of what they have? And I keep thinking about the back four situation and how... If they have the right midfield makeup, how they could get the talented players interacting with each other to maximum effect because they're just not scoring anywhere near enough goals. And it's not because they don't have players who can score goals. It's because it's not happening tactically. And and you just think about that back five with a couple of midfielders they've got in Neves and Matinho and then the, the wingers being so wide and the striker being isolated a lot of the time. I just wonder whether Nuno might be thinking of of his investment in a, a top quality centre half who might be able to play in a four, presumably with Bolly, and maybe moving Cody into midfield. And I've mentioned it before, but I'd love to see what he could do in there because he has everything, doesn't he? He's he's combative, he can tackle, he can pass, he can score goals when he's put up there. And it might be that the answer, or the solution, as Nuno likes to put it, could be right under their nose. I think if I think if you look if you look at the basis of their squad, they've got a very good squad, in my opinion, and it's it's going to be evolution this summer, not not revolution. And I think I think most fans would agree with that. It's just about the key signings in the key areas to bring everything together, because you've got the backbone of a very good team there. Patricio in goal, you've got Bolly at the back, Cody, excellent defender. You've got Neves in midfield, and you've got Jimenez up front. That's a great spine. Then you've got Traore, Pedence, and Neto behind Jimenez. You know you're adding Johnny. I think he's a fantastic fullback. Matinho with his class, you know, he's not going to be every week now, but he, but he can still add a lot. Um, Dendonka and Saiz, good squad players. There's there's re- there's a really good base for a good squad there. The decision they've got to make is, one, do they stick with Samedo or do they move him on and try and recoup much of their transfer fee back? You know, do they think there's more to come from him? I think they probably do think there's more to come from him. Um, and improve the squad. And we've said some of the players they've brought in, I really like the look of Hoover from what I've seen. I really like... Nori in some games has been very good and I know he's inconsistent but you know he's very young learning his game um, there's a lot of talent there we talked about Gibbs White so much this season you know if he went out to championship next season and came back in two years time he could be a fantastic player so the basis is there but my god they, they really need a couple of really important additions this summer to bring it together um, as I've said before I don't think they've turned into a, a um, an average team I just think they're having an average season um, and if you add in an extra 10 goals that Jimenez would have brought, they'd, they'd be probably another 5, 10 points up the table. And we'd be saying, fair enough, this is okay. So um, so they're, 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 they're not as further off as, as, as the table looks, in my opinion. Um, but it is still a very big summer. Yeah, and the problem is they can't score goals. And just going back to the potential, I don't know what Nuno's thinking, but I mean, he played back four before he came to Wolves when he switched to five in that uh, famous summer. And... If you did do that and you think it might potentially bring the best out of Morgan Gibbs-White and Pedence, bearing in mind there could be a more central role for them. Um, and I was looking at William Jose's goals from the last year on YouTube on Sunday night. <laughs> we've, we've saved line of duty for another day or two. Um, I was looking at them all to think, you know, this guy scored goals before coming to Wolves. Why has he stopped? And, and yes, the, the mobility and the movement might, might not be outstanding, but he still scored goals because he had players around him who who fed him. And I look back at all of them. He played mostly in a 4-3-3. And those two goals that he scored in the cup away to Cordoba just before he signed for Wolves. Left foot finish when left unmarked. And 25 yards out, shuffled the ball. Low, powerful drive, bottom left-hand corner. Um, another one was tap in 
so he can be in the right place at the right time when his teammates find him. It did help that he played with David Silva in behind him, by the way, back in November when he scored twice at Celta Vigo. That was in a 4-4-1-1. And um, he, he had a couple of goals sort of laid on a plate for him, right place, right time. And also he played with Martin Odegaard, who's now on loan from Real Madrid at Arsenal, but he was on loan at Real Sociedad and played with him at Villarreal when he scored as well, sliding in at the far post. He'd also had a towering header from a cross rolled out for offside. So his service, frankly, what I'm trying to say, was a lot better then. He wasn't particularly any better at moving then, but the service was better. So it looks as though that's something that Wolves need to sort out for the rest of the season. I just wonder whether Nuno's going to use this three weeks or so, even though he has players away on international duty, whether he might use it to experiment a little bit. And as, as one tweeter suggested, maybe even use it as a mini pre-season to get his thoughts across. Not yet. I think they'll they'll need to they'll want to get to forty points first. A couple of wins in Fulham for Fulham in quick succession, and you know they they're sucked into it. So they want to make sure of safety first, and then yeah, hopefully some experimentation. Um, what I would say on Jose, you know, we've all given him a bit of a kick in for not scoring, but he has improved Wolves' play in my opinion, and that's primarily what he was brought in for. Again, in my opinion, that Fabio Silva was just not linking play. It's not his game yet. He's not ready. He's a kid. Jose does hold the ball up and does link play and does find his teammates. And results have improved with him in the team, you got to say. They, you know, they were sliding towards the bottom three before he arrived. He's shored things up from the front in that regard. Um, he just hasn't added goals yet, but I think primarily he was brought in to aid the team style of play, to make it more similar to when Raul Jimenez is in the team. And to an extent, I think he's done that. Yeah, it didn't help Wolves seeing the FA Cup matches at the weekend, did it? Seeing Southampton now in the semi-finals. Ugh. Oh, very, very painful. And seeing seeing Leicester as well, who are in the oh, semi-finals. Oh, and, and seeing Kelechi yeah, Inacho, who is playing with Jamie Vardy. But I mean, you think of Jamie Vardy as being the equivalent of Raul Jimenez to Wolves. But he's only scored one goal in 16 games since mid-December. But Kelechi Inacho has scored nine goals in his last nine, 14 for the season. They've also got Harvey Barnes, who's out injured. He's scored 30 for the season. James Madison's also injured. He scored 11 for the season, plus four from Ayose Perez. So whilst Wolves like to think of themselves on a similar kind of level, maybe aspirationally to Leicester, they've caused so many more goals throughout that side, despite the fact they've suffered key injuries as well this season to Ricardo Pereira, Madison, Soyuncu. They sold Chilwell in the summer for 50 million quid and uh, they didn't have Madison Barnes or James Justin at the weekend and they've also had to deal with Europa League and travelling during the pandemic as well. Then you see West Ham, nine goals from midfield from Thomas Socek, plus they've got Lingard, Bowen and Antonio scoring. So it just comes back to Wolves not getting goals from various other parts of the field. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's priority number one for the summer. Well, actually, defender is priority number one and then attacker is priority number two. And yeah, there's a few things to sort out. Yeah, you mentioned last week about relegation, you cheeky chimp, didn't you? And you got people <laughs> a little bit concerned me? because a cheeky chimp, you are. <laughs> Wolves nine points above the relegation zone now after Fulham's defeat at home to Leeds. It was 1-1 and had Fulham scored the winner instead of conceding the second, then Wolves would be just six points clear of Fulham and Newcastle would be in the bottom three, seven points behind Wolves with nine games remaining. So it could have been a little bit tricky. Star striker Callum Wilson's coming back for Newcastle as well, of course, for the next game, whereas Raul's probably out for another month or so. So it's not far off being... Not a very good season at all if they weren't careful. No, I, th- I, th- I think there's, I think there's a chance that they've already got enough points to stay up. Um, but obviously, you, you don't want to risk it at all. Um, I, th- I think Wolves have finished comfortably clear of the bottom three, personally, uh, with the games they've got coming up. 
but yeah, it's just there's just that, that that worrying sign that yeah, Fulham put together a, a string of results, but that hasn't happened yet. And uh, yeah, that Leeds result um, was good news for Wolves. And finally, Nuno will have a few more players than usual at Compton this international break. Yeah, so uh, Patricio hasn't gone uh, to travel with Portugal. Obviously, you remember that horrific knock. Uh, against Liverpool, so he's he's been monitored at Compton and won't be playing for Portugal, which is good. Um, but also, yes, Semedo hasn't been called up by Portugal, and Traore hasn't been called up by Spain, um, and neither's Johnny. I know Johnny's been out for a while, but he, he you know he has been in the squad before. He hasn't been called up either. So um, there's a long list back at Compton. The ones that have gone out are Cody with England, Neves, Matinho, and Neto with Portugal. Just the three in the Portugal squad. Vitinha's gone with the under twenty ones. Saiz with Morocco, Bali with Ivory Coast, and Otisawi uh, with America. Jimenez joining up with Mexico, but for training only, as we know. So, so there are lots of players back at Compton, some of whom wouldn't normally be, including Nate Norrie, who's injured, not 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 with France under twenty ones. Uh, Pedence is injured as well, so he hasn't been called up by Portugal. So um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because they're all sat in Wolverhampton, bored as anything, instead of travelling for a bit of a change of scenery. But um, but yeah, at least they're not away picking up injuries. Anyway. At least they're training. They've got each other, haven't they? It could be worse. They could be. They've got each other. Oh, that's well, lovely. They, have, they get to see their They've mates. They've got each other. They, each other <laughs> they get to see everyone every day instead of, you know, certain people just down the A four four nine in Stafford who have to entertain themselves with a typewriter. Have you got a typewriter? <laughs> what are you talking about? What are you talking about today? Coming out with all sorts. Um, any word on Pedence? We always get tweeted. How's Pedence doing? Back after the international break, do you reckon? Uh, should have been back for Liverpool on his on his on the um, sort of five weeks he was supposed to be out for. So um, yeah, Nuno said he hasn't hadn't joined in in group training um, before that Liverpool game. So, but another three weeks on, you'd imagine he'd be back in training before West Ham, and, and hopefully he can make that one. And Ruben Neves has finally been united, not reunited, but united with his brand new baby boy. Or not so brand new, because look at the pictures. It looks like it's a teenager already. Bless him. He's a, he's a big lad, isn't he? He's gone past the newborn stage already. Yeah, and you've been really worrying about this. Uh, I know that I this have. news would have cheered you up you know, yeah. more than most. Um, so no, great, great news altogether. I'm a soppy git. <laughs> and Vitinha is going to have a baby. There's something catching about young Portuguese men coming to Wolverhampton and impregnating their partners. It, well, it happens yeah. quite soon. I mean, it's, it is a cultural difference, though, isn't it? That they do settle down rather more quickly than, say, English lads <laughs> with nightclubs in Birmingham to go to. What are you getting at? But what it is, are they doing it is, though, of, it is a different culture. The rest of us aren't. <laughs> it, is a, it is a cultural difference, though, isn't it? Isn't that why they, one of the reasons they like <laughs> signing young Portuguese players? I, I, I don't know. They're all, they're all at it like rabbits during the pandemic. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> How is Tinder, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> it's dried up oh god that's it uh, I yes, thought people yeah. would be on all these apps and things more when they can't no, go it's out a, it's, a, it's illegal to meet people so you know sort of died a death really people still are better aren't they but whatever Vatini's doing he's, um, he knows what he's up to I guess get some, get some tips off Vatini shall I <laughs> Thank you, Tim, Thanks, for now. Jackie. Just mentioned the Wolves women will finally be reunited on Monday when government guidelines mean they can actually train together and they have all of six days before their first fixture back, which is just in the FA Cup, not in the league, of course, which has been curtailed, but they'll be playing at Nottingham Forest. So good luck to them getting back together, but they can't wait to see each other. And a reminder to all of you, you can read all of Tim's in-depth Wolves analysis, as well as all the insight from all the other fine writers on The Athletic with 40% off for six months 
by signing up at theathletic.co.uk forward slash wolves pod. Thanks again to Tim and to Richard Skiro. We'll be back same time next week, early Tuesday morning in your regular podcast inbox. So make sure you subscribe. Bye for now. The Athletic.